He was actually, one of you was speaking to me privately. I invited you all to do so, and I'm glad that so many of you did over Shabbos. Um, someone was asking me about, I mentioned about research on compliments and how sincere compliments are extraordinarily gratifying and that ironically, maybe not ironically, when we, when we give like these generic compliments or compliments for things that the kids really are not good at, um, it, it, the research shows that many people find it kind of offensive because they know that this is something they struggle with. You say, good try, you, you gave it your greatest effort, it's fine. But if someone's not a good golfer and you tell them, wow, you're an amazing golfer, it's really offensive. So, so the idea is really um, to try to target your, your, your compliments and the things that you're saying in a way that, um, that's really meaningful, that the person knows that you really get them. That's really, you know, what I found personally, I, where's the rabbi? Oh, there you go. Rabbitson, thank you for hosting me. You're an amazing, both of you, concierge, hostess, all of it. Um, I'll tell you a story about something that really meant a lot to me. Um, and, and, and I actually had, uh, we started a family email chat, uh, text chats for the grandkids. And um, I actually tried to do this to two of our granddaughters over the last 48 hours, um, where I was writing just a paragraph to them instead of saying only, I'm very proud of you. And I detailed one specific thing that they did how one of them took such good care of one of the younger children. It's just a short paragraph. I watched over Hanukkah, we were all together. You know, the way you took care of, I'll read it to you. This is, but this is really, I, I'm not saying this is my granddaughter, or yeah, she really is amazing. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I'm serious, like, I, I just want to show you what I think it, it looks like, because I know for myself, you know, what, what, we find, what we find most meaningful is when, when someone hits the sweet spot with us, um, and says something in a way that's, that, that really is profound. I just sent this to one of our granddaughters. Don't say it, please, and don't um, It was so nice seeing you, seeing you last week over Hanukkah. Every time I see you, I'm impressed at how you take such amazing care of your younger brother and your younger cousins and how much they love you. My Rebbe used to say that Yaakov Avinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, and David HaMelech um, Jacob, Moses, and David, King David were all shepherds before they became great leaders of the Jewish people. My Rebbe Rav Pam used to say that. Because being a shepherd was great training for leadership. Why? Because it's just like a shepherd learns to look after each individual sheep and takes care of their needs, they will one day be a great leader that watches out for the, all the people who need their help. Okay? One paragraph. Took me five minutes to type while I was walking the nature preserve rabbi <laughs> behind the house. Um, so this is a targeted compliment, and my daughter called me to tell me that she walked up with the most beautific smile. Um, and you know, we, we, we know what it's like when someone understands us and someone um, gets us. So it so happens, just to follow Rabbi, uh, uh, and you, said, you said about the golf. So we were at our daughter's house in Baltimore for, for, um, for Shabbos. It was the week of my birthday. So my daughter, our daughter, got, a, got, a, got me a birthday cake. And the, the, the guy behind the counter said, what are your father's hobbies? 
So she said he loves to golf. So he added on, a, he slapped on an icon of a guy swinging golf. So my daughter said, our daughter said, um, she said, golf is what he likes to do. That's not who he is. Have a picture of him taking a grandkid golfing. That's who he is. And, you know, I put it right up on my Facebook page. You know, I said, this is... So, you know, it, it, it's these, it's sometimes just a nuance between saying like a general thing. And I, I used to, it was an exercise that I did at Bar Mitzvahs when I, when I spoke to my students. I would always try to find something that was specific and targeted and that let them know that they're not just one of 270 kids in the school, that I know who they are and that I recognize something that or sometimes they themselves, sometimes kids would come after the Bar Mitzvah and tell me, you know, Rebbe, it was really nice of you to say that, but I never really thought of it in that way. And I used to actually, when the kids would go in seventh grade, two weeks before Bar Mitzvah, I would start thinking about, you know, what, what, what it is that I was going to say. So, so that's just part of it. Just the other thing is, I, I know I'm really honored. I, I made an invitation to all of you to come contact me. I genuinely, sincerely am humbled and honored that you would seek my advice. Um, it, it really is kind of hard to, you know, to get, to get me. Um, I would encourage you, if you do social media, on the handout here, I have the various social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, it's just at Yaakov Horowitz. And I also have a, a, a YouTube page that I put things on. Um, it's not ready yet, but one of my dreams for the past 20, 30 years has been to create a website where parents can communicate with each other and do you know, horizontal learning about um, dealing with any other issue, within any, so many wide range of issues, and have experts in the field be able to uh, coach and guide and offer their advice. So I've been working on it for a while. Um, I hope, with God's help, um, I hope in the next few months, I hope that it'll be out. The idea is basically it's going to be a, a chat. I have already 60 volunteers who offer it, the top people in the Jewish world and some actually in the non-Jewish world, who are experts on, on the widest range of subjects where you folks can ask a question of your peers, let's say, you know, I'm raising a 15-year-old daughter, should we keep having difficulty finding stuff to talk about, anything? And you, you can tag one of the experts, one of the forum leaders on the subject of their expertise, and hopefully they chime in at some point in time. So I hope it'll be up, you know, I'll post it on any of my social media. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm genuinely, sincerely humbled and honored that you would feel this way. Okay, can you all hear me in the back, folks? Please let me know if you can. So, uh, uh, the, the, top, the title of the topic, is this for recording? Who's, who's in charge here? Is this for recording? This is a microphone? <laughs> Testing? This is recording? Oh, it's, we're good? Perfect, okay, thank you. <laughs> Just edit that out, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> okay, um, we'll start. Hi, it's my great pleasure to introduce, we have a scholar in residence, uh, just a wonderful guy. We're finally getting rid of him in an hour. It's Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz. Oh, thank you for that introduction. Um, so, so, so the idea came to me, um, th this idea about the 12 steps and, and um, how it can help all of us. Um, and in particular, how it, it dovetails with the, the thinking of Jewish thought leaders on the process of we, what we call teshuva, um, which uh, we then you know, loosely translated as repentance. The real word shov means to return. 
it's really more of like a reset, actually. If you think of the word teshuva, it doesn't necessarily correlate to the word uh, repentance. It's more like, like, you know, go back to factory settings, you know, to go back to, to return, so to speak. Um, I, I've been working, you know, because I dealt with teens at risk for many years, uh, initially, you know, in the 1990s and the early uh, years of the 2000s, um, I come across a lot of kids who were, who were either in recovery, who needed recovery, and then later, I, I last eight years, my wife and I were asked to volunteer. We've been volunteering at retreats for folks in addiction, folks in recovery for addiction. If any of you are struggling with addiction or have a loved one that is, um, I, I would just encourage you, it's something, you know, as a volunteer there, the, the organization is called Madregos, Madrega means a step in Hebrew. So, to, and, and they, they run beautiful, beautiful Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur retreats. If it's something that you might want to uh, suggest to a loved one, uh, I, I would really encourage, it's a wonderful experience. The rabbis there are really fantastic and they created, they call it the non-judgmental judgment day. So, so the kids, most of the kids are no longer observant. Many, 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 very high percentage have been gone through the trauma. And these rabbis just created a safe space where nobody bothers them about how they dress, how they look, what, where they are in life. Um, there's absolutely no you know, expectation of the kids participating in religious practice or religious the prayer service, but they come as much and as little as they want. They actually blow shofar at the meals. Um, it's really a, a wonderful experience. I would just encourage you to, to, to do that. Anyway, so wh- one, of the, one of the things that I, that, that I asked Dr. Tursky, who was kind enough to mentor me, Dr. Abraham Tursky, you know, he's the author of 80 plus books. He had a, uh, he created, in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he created a recovery place for, I think, if I remember correctly hearing from him, I think there wasn't even government funding for it at the time. That's how you know, how back then it was, I think it was the early 70s. He was like so ahead of his, his field and, every, and all of this. Um, and when I first started dealing with this, he was extraordinarily gracious in giving me his time and helping me to understand things and being available. And I'm telling you, again, I keep saying this, I, I, he was my age when I started talking to him and I don't know how he had the time, how he made the time, I really don't know. But he just graciously made himself available. And one of the discussions, in our talks, I asked him, and this is how it started. I said, Dr. Tversky, how come folks in recovery, at least some folks in recovery, change? And I, I told this is what I told him. You know, I'm a straight shooter. You've been with me, if you've been with me, Shabbos. You know, I, I call him like I see him. I said, Dr. Tversky, Rav Shia, his name is Avrami Shia Heshel, is Abraham. So I, I said, Rav Shia, I said, you know, I, I go like this on Yom Kippur, and I really, you know, I really, really mean it. And ah, two days later, I'm doing the same thing. So how come your guys change and I can't? That was my question. What can I learn? These folks in recovery, I meet these kids that are, that are addicted to cocaine and heroin and, and, and uh, or whatever, and, and somehow many of them are able to stay clean, and I'm trying to change things in my life, and it's not working. So on the spot, he told me, he said, <laughs> Rabbi Akiva, he has a great chuckle in this accent that he says, <laughs> Rabbi Akiva, he said, you don't really want to change. <laughs> he says, you're happy the way you are. He said, if you felt that you could not live the way you are now, number one, and number two, if you felt 
that it was important enough to go to a meeting every day, a tshuva meeting. He said, if you went to a base Musa, a study, a Beit Medrash, with a study ethical texts, texts um, maybe you would, maybe. <laughs> he said, if you did that for 90 days, and you went to meetings every day, and you felt, whatever, you have a temper, you have this, you want to change, you're not kind enough, whatever it is, and you really want to change, <laughs> I want to make lists. <laughs> that would be a good truth. Right? So, I want to get more organized. So he said, if you felt that you can't live the way you were, and you did it for 90 days, you might also you know, change. So this got me really thinking into the whole thing of how maybe we could, maybe folks in the non-recovery world, maybe there are things that we could take from the people in recovery to impact our lives and, be, and enable us to, to, um, to have positive change. So uh, I, I brought over here the sources, so just before I get started, um, or while I'm getting started. So Maimonides is the laws of repentance. Uh, it's called Hilchot Tshuva, the laws of, of Tshuva. Um, and Perik Aleph, Halacha Aleph and Perik Beis Halacha Aleph, those are the, some of the sources from rabbinic texts. Obviously, there's lots of commentary on that, but I'm going to draw from those things. Um, I'm going to share with you a story in a moment about a thought I had in the Yom Kippur, the Yom Kippur davening. Um, I'll get to that in a moment. I also want to talk to you, is, I don't know if, if Michael is still here. Yes. Thanks to Avichai, I was at, participated in a Harvard Principles program, which was really an absolutely extraordinary experience. We had 10 days. We were 150 educators from all around the world, every culture, religious creed, religion creed you could imagine. And we were 150 of us, 10 of them were Jewish educators that Avichai sponsored every single year. It really changed my life. I mean, it was probably 10 grand a pop or between the hotel and the food. What? We don't talk about that. But I, I won't talk about the fact that I checked the tuition and it's about $4,500 per person. So they put us up in a hotel and they paid for our food. You know, it was really, um, I'm actually writing an article. You should just, not because of you. I've, I started on the plane on the way here. I want to write a thank you note to the Avichai staff and then put it, post it publicly. So one of the presentations we had was by a, 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 just a brilliant fellow named, named Robert Keegan, Dr. Robert Keegan. And he wrote a book called Immunity to Change. And he was talking about why people don't change. He, he sounded a little bit like Dr. Torsky, <laughs> you know, in his approach. But it, it was much more, it, it, was, it was the same and different. Um, and he actually started his presentation with a study that they did on uh, heart patients who had suffered a heart event, a catastrophic heart event that they survived. And they were told that they will not live another, I think it was 24 months, if they don't change their life habits. And the study showed, anybody want to guess what percentage changed? What? It was, what did you say? It was about 17, 17, uh, one-seventh of the people changed. And I checked this out, I spoke to people who suffered heart attacks and survived 10 years, <laughs> and asked them how many actually just spoke to someone last week as I was writing this up I thought of another person to call and I said tell me your experience and he, he really did change he dropped 100 pounds he started whatever we were at, we were at a meeting and, and, and he uh, not a recovery meeting you know we were talking and, and he said he said that um, he said that the doctor told him they put in a stent and the doctor told him he said yeah uh, I know right now you're thinking that you know you're 
never going to do this again, and now you're going to do this. He said, I'll see you in a couple of months. <laughs> and thank God, it's been 20 years. Like, he, he, did, he didn't need to go back, but, but he explores. I mean, obviously, the people are motivated to change. Why aren't they changing? I'd like to share with you that Dr. Keegan, in a brilliant way, put us in groups of three and asked us to find each other. Did you go to the class? You ever went to his class on that? You did. Uh, it was masterful. I'm going to share with you some of our experiences. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be quoting something, from, some parts from God of Our Understandings by a fellow named Rabbi Shays Taub, who happens to be a Chabad Shliach in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And lately, the last few years, he's been writing in a, in a weekly called Ami Magazine. So he's become a little more uh, famous. But when I spoke to him first, I just reached out to him. He has an absolutely brilliant book. If you're looking for a Jewish take on addiction, it's really a, a magnificent uh, piece. So I'm going to go through my Maimonides. I'm going to go through the 12 steps. I'm going to talk about some of these things. And then I'll, I'll have time for some questions. Um, so one of the things that I've been doing, and I really... Um, I hope one day um, to write a book about it, to write a, um, my, uh, my different, my, I'm trying to think of the right word, um, my renewed understanding for parts of our liturgy, of our tefillot, especially Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur prayers, that I've come to see differently because of my work with people in addiction and abuse survivors and all of this stuff. Um, has led me, I'm a restless guy, if you were at the last class, you get, got that, and sitting in shul was really painful for me, because it's a difficult period, long periods of time, it's, it's, you may have seen me pacing around in shul during davening over Shabbos, um, it's just a real tough one for me, so one of the things that I've been doing is, is trying to look at the liturgy, look at the words in the Machzorim, in the prayer books, and try to think of different interpretations of it, I'll give you one, I have about 30 of them, um, and one of them was that, that um, uh, about four or five years ago, they, um, at the Madregos Yom Kippur retreat, I was honored by being one of the two fellows that holds the Sefer Torah during Kol Nidre. So Kol Nidre is the first uh, prayer of, of the Yom Kippur service at night before my riv, before the evening prayers. And uh, it's an annulment of vows, long story, not for now, why we do that, but we annul everyone's vow, vows. Um, kol nidre, neder is a promise, so all the promises that we made, they should be, not for now why it is done. But anyway, what they do is, you need a religious court to do this, a betin. So what they do is, the baltfila, the, the one who leads the services, stands in the middle, two people stand on each side holding a Sefer Torah, they, they comprise a betin, a religious court, and they annul everyone's vows. Okay, that, that's the backstory. Now, so they came, someone came over to me in shul and said, Yak, Rabbi Horowitz, we'd like to, to take one of the Sefer Torah, which is really nice. The backstory that you might not know is that it says they should take two zakenim from the shul, two of the elders from the shul. Like, that was really nice. It was a nice moment in my life. You, know? so, you hit like the angel of death knocking on your head. You know? yeah, so so that, that was one part. And the other part is I knew that I'd have to stand for 25 minutes in one place looking at two pages of text. I can't go anywhere. I can't even turn to other parts of the... Why are you smiling? You, you also have a hot time in shul? <laughs> no, just, so so I, I said, I'm stuck. There. Oh my God, what am I going to do there for 25? minutes so and and you can't even flip to other pages because everybody's looking at you right <laughs> go chain me up give me leg irons what do you want so I was looking at the text and um, something struck me that was the first of my 30 
And it says there, uh, the the Baltfila, the, the one who leads the service, it says like this, Adasa Makam, Adasa Kahal, Anu Matirim Bezdin, the first thing they pronounce is, we Anu Matirim, we give you permission, Mutar means permissible, Lehit Falel, to pray Imha Avaryanim, with the sinners. Okay, that's what it says. We, Bezdin, the three of us, are giving permission to pray with the sinners. That's what it says. And if you look in, in some of the Jewish machzorim, the Jewish prayer books, excuse me, the explanation given is that sinners aren't in synagogue all year long, typically. So we want to have them with us. He said, they can all come together. Everybody's welcome on Yom Kippur. Now I'm looking at the text and I'm saying, folks, this doesn't match what it says there. It says we give you permission. What? To pray with the sinners, it should say, we give the sinners permission to pray with us. It's like on the first day of Pesach, on the Seder, the Seder night on Passover, we say, anybody who's hungry, come in and eat. So they should make a big announcement. Anybody who's uh, a sinner, come on in and pray. It's okay, today, today you're all welcome in Shul. I'm sorry? You want to say something? I'm sorry. No. So that, that was my first question. The second question is, we don't believe that there's sinners and non-sinners. Right? If I'm a non-sinner and people are other people are sinners, so I'll walk the golf course and uh, what do I have to stand up there for? Let somebody else stay in shul. Let the sinners come. I'll leave. So the, the, the situation there is like most of the, the adults and the volunteers and the staff are all inside shul. Some of the kids are in shul. Many of the kids are outside. And, and again, the great culture, there, a lot of the kids are smoking in their cars on Yom Kippur and nobody bats an eyelash, which is the beauty of the place. So I was looking at this text, and, and a thought came to me. And for the first time in my life, I asked someone to come to a speech of mine. I've never, ever done that. So I went outside after, after I was released from the 25 minutes of bondage. I went outside, and I told the kids. The kids were all congregated there. I said, kids, um, a thought came to me. I, I was on schedule to speak after my room. I usually speak for a half hour to the adults. I said, I, I promise you I'm going to speak for less than 10 minutes. I never asked anyone in my life to come to a talk of mine. Please come inside. There's something I'd like to share with you. So the kids came in. They, you know, I developed a relationship with them over, the, over time. So I asked them these two questions. I said, well, there's no sinners and non-sinners. I'm also a sinner. And what do you mean we give permission? And that's really the theme of, overall theme of the big picture of what, I, what, I, what, I'm, what we're talking about here. So I told the kids that I, can't, I have a new interpretation and it might be right, it might be wrong, but it, it speaks to me, so I'm going to share it with you. So I told the kids that I'd like to think that avaryanim is a plural. Avera is sin. Avaryanim seem to be people who commit sins. I'd like to suggest, I said, that it doesn't, a shoemaker uh, doesn't commit shoes. A shoemaker works with shoes. Um, a bricklayer works with bricks. I want to suggest that avaryanim might mean people who actually work and confront their sins. So maybe what Bezdin is telling us, the rabbinic court is not talking to the sinners. Maybe the rabbinic court is talking to the middle-aged beards and suits who don't want to change anymore. And maybe Bezdin is telling us we give you permission to slum a little bit. Get off your high horse and go outside to the kids 
who are struggling with their addictions and have the courage to learn from them that all us people, I told them, I said, you know, guys, whatever, whatever I was then, 55 or so, I said, I'm 55 years old, I made peace already with my weaknesses and what I'm not good at, what I'm good at, yeah, whatever, it is what it is. I don't have the, I don't have the guts to do what you're doing. So I said, Bezdin is saying, Anu Matirum, I give you permission, Lehispalulim Avrayanim, to, to pray together with people, don't pray with people your age, don't pray with people like you, go seek out people who are struggling to change, and learn from them. Get courageous. Get out of your... They say life, begins at the, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. Get out of your comfort zone and, and have the courage to change. Anyway, so that's what's really about this is, is trying to get outside our comfort zone and see what we can do to change. So Maimonides says, if you look in the text... Uh, I'm, I'm going to work my way through this hand that if you, if you look at the text, um, there seems to be five steps. The first one in bold, I'm going to leave out for now because if you pick up... The a text of the Rambam, I, I did not put it in Hebrew, but again, you can look it up, but I'll read to you. What it says is, it says like this, that uh, the Rambam says that it is a positive commandment, it's a mitzvah, a positive commandment to repent, to do tshuva. And the uh, Rambam says, Ketzad misvadin, how do you do this? So you say, Ana Hashem, God, Chatasi, I sinned before you in this and this way. You say, I sinned by, excuse me, I sinned by not keeping Shabbat or whatever. Um, I, I feel I'm embarrassed and regretful that I did it. That's step number two. Uh, here it's listed as three. I'm just encouraging you, just leave, away, leave out the first step for a moment. So he says, uh, um, here's what I did, God. He expressed shame and remorse. I'm never going to do this again. Um, that's, that's that text in, in, in Perik Aleph, Halacha Aleph, that's the extent of how it describes proper tshuva. And we generally say, Charata Kabbalah Belev Vidoy. That's how we say it. Charata is regret. Kabbalah Belev is you make up in your heart that you're going to do your very best not to do it again. And to go to Vidoy, where you, where you actually speak those, the, the, the things that you did. We, we, in Jewish tradition, we don't um, do confession with other humans. And those in the Christian faith, and incidentally, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they do specifically talk about their sins to other people. We, in the Jewish tradition, we typically don't do this, but we do speak to God. Hopefully, we, have, we try to have a relationship where we speak to God as we would speak to a person. Now, we also know from other places that <clears throat> if you do a sin to God only, um, that's one category, but if you sin to another human, if you hurt someone's feelings, or you took money from them, or you did other things that impacted their life negatively, we need to apologize and, and get, get uh, uh, we call it mechila, uh, get uh, um, forgiveness, thank you. Get forgiveness from the other person. It's as if God says, listen, don't come to me till you settle up with him, you know, or her. Take, take care of that first, and then you can come talk to me. So that's a, a, another step. And the Rambam in in the in Perik Beis in in the, the second chapter, the Rambam says that you know, paraphrasing my aunt, I had an aunt Shirley who lived in Scranton, Pennsylvania. She was a great cook, and she always used to say, "Don't compliment my food, ask for doubles." Right? That was the line. Don't say nice things about the food. If you ask for seconds, I get it. <laughs> you know, so that was her line. So she was a good cook, so it was easy to do. So the the Rambam in a similar way says that. Tshuva Gemura, the real tshuva, is to be in that place again 
and not do it. If you're in the same situation that you were um, when you when you got there that that did the sin in the first place, in other words, it, it seems in addition to this or that's genuine tshuva is when you get to that um, and, and don't do it again. So looking at it in the Alcoholics Anonymous, if you look, I, I did, so if you look at the 12 steps there, uh, the first one in bullets that, not, that are not numbered, that was a, a Kitzah Shulchan Aruch. That was like a short, uh, a short version of how the, uh, the, the 12 steps evolved. I'm gonna go later and show you some of the thinking about, about how it actually got there, which is a fascinating, fascinating letter in the, in the second page of your handout that I'll walk you through soon. Um, but this, this basically, the, the steps started with, the, there were two, two people there, um, Will, William Bill was, was, you know, was the Mechaber, you know, the main one there. He said, we admitted we were licked, we admitted that we, that we couldn't control ourselves, we got honest with ourselves, we talked it over with another person, that's the video to a person, which in our tradition we do not do. We made amends to those we had harmed, and look at the similarities already. Okay, we made amends to people that we harmed. We tried to carry this message to others with no thought of reward, and we prayed to whatever God we thought there was. And that, that eventually became translated to higher power because there are atheists, uh, or people who don't believe in, in religious tradition, and they wanted them to be able to take advantage, so they thought of it conceptually as a higher power instead of referring to God. But uh, if you look at the 12 steps, you can see them in, in greater detail. If you're really interested, Tab, Rabbi Tab in his book has some brilliant uh, other ways of explaining it. He actually has the 12 non-steps, active verse, I can live the way I am. I don't need to talk to anybody about it. I can take, it's really a fascinating uh, way of explaining. He has a number of different gimmicks that are really brilliant in explaining to, uh, to uh, you know, someone who's not in recovery. Uh, but if you look at the, look at uh, number three, look, if you look at the top, the God pieces, you have number three, number five mentions God, number six mentions God, um, uh, and then later on even more, we, um, it's a like so through prayer, uh, 11 is a, is a God step. Um, if you look at the Rambam's Hilchus Shuva, there doesn't seem to be a God piece at all. So when I was first looking at this, at the similarity, that was my first thought the first year that I started getting into this, because I wanted to help the kids, I wanted to understand the 12 steps better, um, there's no God piece there, which is striking because it seems to be an underpinning of recovery is to connect to a higher power. And the thinking really is that if you really want to change, if it's all about you, if there's nobody higher than you, and then there are no rules, and if there's no, it's like arbitrary, so what he has, says you have to change. Um, so connecting to higher power would seem to, to, to bring you to a different plane where you realize that you're a vulnerable person and you should change. So I looked back at the Rambam a few times and then I saw that one of the steps when, when we list them, we start by saying, Ketzad Mizvadim, that's why I put the first one in bold, it says, Ana Hashem, behold God, Chotasi Avisi Pashati. So it's right there in front of us that in fact, the Rambam listed it first, that it's a prerequisite, and I wrote in parentheses, it would seem very, it would seem very logical that Rosh Hashanah comes before Yom Kippur. And if you look at the liturgy of Yom Kippur, I'm sorry, of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur is all about forgiveness. There's almost none of that on Rosh Hashanah. What's the main thing I would take away from Rosh Hashanah? 
that God is our God, right? That we talk about God and power and machios and zichronos, shofar, and the blowing, reminding us of God to awaken our hearts. So I would like to suggest that the Rambam has, and if that, that what I'm saying is interesting, is if you look at the typical, if you stop someone on the street and say, what are the steps of tshuva? Typically they'll say, charata, kabbalah, belev, and vidui. Most people say, and most of the commentaries, if you look, it says those three things. Charata, regret, kabbalah, belev, uh, you know, uh, a commitment for the future, and vidui, and saying the sins, which, which uh, like I said, is, a, is an integral component to all of this. But you don't see the God thing there. I'd like to suggest that that's like the prerequisite, and that's why on Rosh Hashanah, we don't focus on that because the first step is to really get into, uh, into an active relationship with the, with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. Um, um, before I do immunity to change, I'd like to take you to the second page here. And, and um, again, this is from Rabbi Shea's Taub's book. I have to, it's, not the, it's not clear that it's actually a copy from the, um, from the actual book. Rabbi Shea's Taub has an entire, like, uh, a significant part of one chapter is all about this. And it's really a, a, a fascinating story. The backstory is here. You see, it's addressed to dear Mr. Wilson, William Wilson. That was Bill. He was a, a machaber of the, you know, the, one of the origina- originators of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, it, and it actually started with a guy named Rowland, who, was, uh, who was a, uh, lived in, um, in uh, Rhode Island. He was a, a, a state legislator. Um, I think he was a congressman, actually. He was an elected official representing Rhode Island, powerful, wealthy, um, totally committed. And, and um, he, he came, um, he broke down a few times and wasn't able to, uh, he, he crashed. And one of the things about what Dr. Tursky was telling me that I can't, I have to get to a place where I can't live without it. In, in the vernacular, they call it rock bottom. Rock bottom means that this is an axiom in addiction, and if you are, all of you, if you have a loved one that's struggling with opioid addiction or other addictions, um, you know, an axiom in the, in the, in the, in the uh, recovery field is that, it, and it's most, one of the most difficult things for loved ones of addicts to deal with, is the fact that you cannot make them want to recover. And that the the cloud gadol, the main you know, underpinning rule, is that they unfortunately have to hit rock bottom, and rock bottom means it's a it's a um, it's a terrible place where they know that they cannot live anymore. That's what I, the way they are. And I asked Dr. Torsky some questions about rock bottom, and he told me some incredible stories about people whose entire lives got destroyed and they didn't hit rock bottom yet. And it, there's a concept in the in the field that's called raising the bottom, where it's the opposite of enabling. I'm, I'm, I'm telling all of you, first of all, it's, it's relevant to our discussion of, of change as it relates to us, uh, but especially if you're dealing with a loved one who's struggling with addiction, which is unfortunately you know, becoming so commonplace nowadays, even more so. Uh, you know, it seems to be uh, um, you know, more especially this opioid crisis now. Um, the, the loved ones often, with the best of intentions, try to, we, we have a heart and we can't bear to see someone hit rock bottom because rock bottom is hell. One of the things they say in recovery, that's a great line. Um, religion is for people who don't want to go to hell. Recovery is for people who've been there. 
you know, that's the line. Religion is for people who don't want to go to hell. Recovery is for people who've been there already. You know, and, and, and it's, it's fascinating because I can't even, I have a hard time explaining. People ask me, what's it like to be in Madrigos? I said, it's, 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 it's so interesting that, that um, they, the kids are, don't, many of them don't do religious practice as we know it, but they're all spiritual. It's fascinating because they really have an intense relationship with their higher power in a way that some of us might not even. It's, it's really a fascinating, and it's, a fascin- it's just an observation because they hit rock bottom and they're forced to. So the story here was that this, so, um, so Wilson went to, there's a Dr. Jung here, the, the one who signed this was Dr. Jung. He was a, he lived, you see, it's on top in the letterhead, he lived in Zurich, and he was a Talmud Muvuk. He was, uh, you know, the prime student of, of Sigmund Freud, and he was a brilliant man, and Wilson came to him broken, that he, he that Bill came to him like as a broken person, and he just couldn't, he said he can't live like this, and um, Dr. Jung gave him, I think it was in the 30s that he went to him, this letter was written uh, very shortly before Dr. Jung passed away, and in that time period, um, but so he went to him in Zurich, a broken person, he said, yeah, please help me, and he gave him some steps to recover, and Bill went back and crashed a second time. And he said, he came back and he said, I'm going to kill myself, you have to help me. And you see from the letter that Dr. Jung told him, and you see from the struggle that, that he had with it, he said, I don't know why, I'm not a religious person, I'm a scientist, and among us it's considered backward to talk about religion, but I know for a fact, anecdotally, I know that the people who recovered had a, relig- had, had a religious experience. And um, he told them to communicate. So he said, but I do go to church. <laughs> Think of the parallels to us. But he, he says, I go to church regularly. He said, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about a relationship with God. That's the, going to church doesn't... <laughs> Interesting. He said, going to church doesn't mean that you have a relationship with God. It means that you're doing certain practices. You need to have a real relationship with, your, with God. So um, Dr. Wilson wrote a letter, we don't have the letter, but he wrote a letter thanking him. Um, he went back, he got better, and then he started talking about it and started Alcoholics Anonymous over the next 30 years. And I guess at some point in time he did true for himself. And he said, you know, I never thanked Dr. Jung. So he wrote him a thank you letter, and this is what Jung writes back. And dear Mr. Wilson, I'm not going to read all of it, of course, you can try to make the best out of this. It's an old typewriter. <laughs> Remember typewriters? Your letter was welcome. I haven't heard from this Rowland. I was wondering what happened to him. He said, now he said, the reason was I couldn't tell him everything because I had to be exceedingly careful about what he said. I guess Jung was more comfortable saying this before, shortly before he passed away. He said, he, Jung is apologizing for doing the God thing. Take a, read, read the words here. It's, fascinating. it's absolutely fascinating. He said, Thus, I was very careful when I talked to Rowland, but what I really thought about was the result of many experiences of men of his kind. This is really... His craving for alcohol was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness. That, he, that the only thing, that the best thing that he could compare the yearning that an alcoholic has for another drink is the way the medieval prophets spoke about yearning for God. So he says, look, 
And look in the union with God. Look at footnote number one, folks. Might sound familiar. One of the most beautiful verses in Tehillim that Dr. Jung recited. Just like my heart goes, just like I go for water, so my heart yearns for you. And then he says, how can I formulate such an insight in a language that won't be misunderstood today? I'm going to go talk about God, they're going to tell me I'm some backward guy. So he, was, he said, I wasn't even comfortable telling him. I just told him, you have to have a higher power. But I was thinking of this passing. I thought of this when I saw addicts. And he says, the only way legitimate... So you read the end of it. Uh, he said, that's why I couldn't give you a full explanation. Look at the last paragraph here. You see, alcohol in Latin is spiritus. The, they use the same word for the highest religious experience, as well as the most depraving poison. Therefore, the formula is, you have to replace one spirit with another. And that's why I felt that that was the key to the alcoholic, you know, the, the Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, so, you know, the, my takeaway from all of this is that as we go through life and we become, you know, I think it's so appropriate here. You know, I've been here all showers looking around because I walk around the shul a lot. I got to see a lot of you. <laughs> no, but, but really, this is a growing community. And, and you really, there is this passage describing the thirst for a relationship with God and becoming, trying to become more connected is very, very, very real here. And um, the, the, what seems to be clear from the experiences of what, uh, what, what folks in recovery do is to go through the searing process of self-evaluation. What am I doing? How, where am I? Am I meeting the goals that I'm setting? And, and, I, and am I, am I uh, and having the courage to face the truth <clears throat> is often not, a, not an easy thing to do. And I, I think, I know in my own personal life, the things that I've really wanted to change and that I've been trying to work on, um, I'm certainly a work in progress, folks, but I can tell you that whatever change I've been able to make successfully was really following this stuff. And, it, and it's, 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 it's not really a rock bottom, thank God, I love my life, I'm not. It's not a rock bottom for me, but you have to feel that this is something that I really want to change. Um, and it, it actually dovetails very well with the experience that Dr. Kagan was sharing with us. And I'll finish this and I'll, I'll take some questions for a few minutes. Um, and Dr., what Dr. Kagan was exploring is why do people who allegedly want to change and who really do want to change, why is it that people don't change? And he said his chiddush was, and the, you know, his new idea was, if you look at those three steps that I wrote there, look on the bottom, I'm on the bottom of page one of the handout where it says immunity to change Robert Keegan. So number one is the, the thought leaders on this whole space, excuse me, the thought leaders say that the best, the best practices of this is that you write down an action, I will, not to say I'd like to, you know, I will exercise more or I will spend more time with my grandkids because, write a reason why it's important, and then you write an actual commitment. That's, that's how it's typically thought about in, um, in the general uh, uh, world of positive change and people who wrote books and lecture and think about these things. So the best practices seem to be that this is what it looks like. You say, you take a goal, speak about it not as a wish, but as a 
what did they say? Uh, uh, go with the deadline, right? You know, the, you, you want to go with the deadline, not just to say, oh, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to be, uh, you know, whatever. I'd love to be a paratrooper in the army. You know, like I'm not doing it. This might sound cute. You know, I'd love to learn how to, but think about something that I am going to do this. I want to do, and I love to. It would be nice. It would be cute. But when you say, no, I'm going to spend more time with my grandchildren because. It's the most important thing in my life, and I want to, you know, do it. Therefore, I will. What am I going to do? I'm going to make it my business. I'm going to block off two hours on Sunday to communicate with the kids online or to whatever. However that looks like in your own life. So Keegan says that this is not enough because we see the person who said, I'm going to change because I'm going to die. Not everybody was able to do this. I, by the way, I checked with a number of heart doctors and other doctors in other areas, and they all say that that's, the, that's about it. You know, whether it's temp, they say it's 10% to 25%. It's definitely not 75% of people who are changing. So Kagan says, Kagan says um, he says there's actually that people who want, purportedly want to change and really feel that they want to change and aren't changing, he has voluminous studies in the book. I, I, actually, I must tell you personally, I found it a little overwhelming for my personality profile. There was lots of numbers and stuff like, you know, it was, it was very, very, it wasn't L'Shon B'nai Adam. It wasn't, you know, conversation. I do better when I read things that are, you know, like, like I would schmooze with one of you guys and gals, you know, like not, it's a very scholarly book. I can read this stuff, but it doesn't speak to me as well. So you may find it that way, but you can, you can look up online, people synthesized what he says. But this is really a, a synthesis uh, of what he says. He says really that there's a fourth line there, there's inserted in there, he said the people who aren't changing have one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. That means that they say they want to change, they really want to change, but there's a, be, a, a, there is a, a positive benefit that they're getting from the current behavior or a fear that they have that they're not identifying and that's why they're not changing. There's a logical reason to explore why a heart victim won't change. And he said, until you identify this, you won't really be able to change. And he divided us in groups of three, and he told us to, um, <clears throat> to explore each other's reasons. This is our assignment. We should write down what we really want to change. We should do this, the first three, and it's the job of the other two people in the group to find why they're not changing. It was a fascinating experience, an absolutely fascinating, fascinating experience. We all got each other's in our little group, and none of us was self-aware. And uh, we knew it, but it wasn't as obvious. So we were a totally diverse group of you know, folks there. Um, and I wrote down that I wanted to spend more time with my students because I knew it was so important to have developed relationship with them and I want them to be able to seek my guidance when they go through adolescence and even later in life. Uh, therefore, I'm gonna hire a secretary that's gonna specifically be devoted to take my calls and people who try to reach me for my other life so that when I'm in school, I can spend time with the kids. That's what I wrote. I'm gonna do it and I'm pumped up and I'm gonna, and I sat and spoke to the other people there and I said, what's uh, there's not, I'm doing it. There's not, there's not, this is it. It's a, it's a done deal. I'm doing it. So they started channeling. It was like, it was like being, <laughs> it was like being in Besden Shalmila. <laughs> it was like being in, in the heavenly court with the, with the Satan coming in and saying, hey, you're not, Farah, you're full of baloney. <laughs> you know? So one of them said, she said, a woman, she said, uh, she was actually from, uh, from, uh, um, 
you know, uh, from an inner city school, she said, she said, Rabbi Horowitz, how do you feel when you get one of those phone calls? Somebody's calling you from, from London that they have a life-threatening emergency and you're able to, and you know you're good at this. So you, you know exactly what to tell them. How do you feel when you hang up? So I said, it feels great, you know, I, you know. She says, how do you feel when you go into a classroom and, you know, you stop two kids from uh, taking each other's snack? And you could have cut through the silence. <laughs> it was like, and like I knew it. I, I'm a smart guy. I, I got that. But nobody told it to me. And all of a sudden, I just became much more self-aware. And one of the things that I started doing at parenting classes, especially with young parents, is I tell them, no one's going to honor you at a dinner for doing homework with your kid. No one's going to give you a plaque for reading kids a bedtime story. So it's nice to volunteer for other organizations. People will recognize you and you'll do great things. But the things that the, the day-to-day things that your kids need that really build a relationship aren't, let's be honest, they're not glorifying like that. You know, you don't get that buzz that you get from that. And should I tell you I changed overnight? I promise you I didn't. It was a process. It really was a process. And it was something, honestly, if you ask me, uh, you know, from one to a hundred, I, I definitely moved the ball a little bit, but not, wasn't a complete success. It's something I still struggle with. Because if somebody calls, first of all, in, in priority, if I must say the honest truth, you know, I stepped down from my yeshiva four years ago to work on the child safety thing in Israel and my, this Gemara stuff. Really, that was part of my thinking. I said, maybe, maybe this is not what I should be doing. Maybe if I find somebody else to run the yeshiva who can do a great job there, and maybe I should do this. Maybe this is a better use of my time. So that was also part of this process that got me thinking about making a gutsy move and walking away from a school that I built with my blood, sweat, and tears and a lot of, a lot of work. Um, one of the people there said that they were struggling to lose weight. And, it was, you know, similar to the heart thing, said, look, I, you know, I, I know I need to lose weight. It's, a, it's an issue and, and, you know, whatever. So we, we were tasked with finding out why the person couldn't do it. And I don't know why, you know, we, we were exploring. It wasn't clear. And I don't know why Hashem just like, bang. I said, did you ever lose weight and gain it back? And she literally, like a total, like I felt when they hit me with that one. She said that was the most horrible thing in the world. And I said, I just can't do this again. So that was, that was her, that yeah, was hard for me to say it. You know, I said it in a very polite way. But, but I don't know, it just hit me. It was, that was, we were all, both of us, we were trying to go through possibilities. So that, was, that was the barrier. Everybody was complimenting her, felt great, I did it. And then it's whatever, she said she had an injury, a leg injury, and she wasn't able to keep up the exercise, you know, and then, but, so I'm saying, I, I think this is part of the process to go through, um, if you, you have goals in your family life, in your personal life, in your professional life, to go through this process, to have the courage to, to learn from the Avrayanim, to think about what it is, you know, what it is that you want to change, what, are the, what the goals are, uh, um, I propose that by going through these, the, the, this process and thinking about these um, the dynamics here and, and, and actually seeing how it dovetails the, the, the success of 
of, of uh, all the recovery programs, which, which clear, again, again, people don't do it now. God forbid some of them die. But the ones who do it clearly are able to change. It, by the way, we had at first, just the Maimonides was before, uh, you know, we had a little head start on this. But you see clearly that type of thinking really is, is very um, congruent with, with what we know now to be the best practices for change. So, you know, I'll take some questions now. I hope you found this a little thought-provoking and a little out of the box. Um, and, um, I, you know, I hope, that, uh, I hope that you'll take some steps on the journey. I'll take some questions. Please, go. Uh, Rabbi, first of all, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can you just, I ask if you just kind enough to speak up? Oh, yeah, sure. I Go. came back here to my sorry. Yeah, you're like me, basically. <laughs> um, you had mentioned the concept of raising the bottom. Yes. And I feel that on the addiction side of things, raising the bottom, of course, is to try to inculcate change uh, without hitting rock bottom. And on the personal side, outside of addiction, um, trying to get something to change without having to have heart surgery, whatever it is, right? So, Thank you. It's an excellent question. Let, let, me, let me put it out there. I'm not an expert in, right. you know, I don't have formal training in this. I, I thank God I know enough to know when I don't know and I should reach out for help. But I don't treat anyone. I, it's not what I do. So I'm just telling you from the, the body of knowledge that I've learned and read. So, so I'm, I just feel obligated to put it out there. I never do any counseling. I, to, I hope I can encourage people to go for help. But the, the concept of raising, if you think about it, the enabling, the, the concept of enabling, and I said again, there's a thing called, look it up now, I, I, I keep saying over Shabbos, I'm an eighth grade Rebbe, I don't get distracted by anything you do, trust me. So if you want to look it up, there's a thing called Al-Anon, which is a support groups for loved ones of addicts. Because this enabling thing is so difficult uh, to avoid enabling and um, it's counterintuitive to everything that we're, we've, we're taught and that we've lived life of supporting other people and helping loved ones. Um, what, it, what's, what it boils down to is that when, when we enable someone, they, we're lowering the bottom. We're helping them to avoid rock bottom. Let's leave, leave alcohol out of it. Let's think of a person who's a, who's a compulsive um, he borrows money that he, know, he or she knows they can't pay back, or credit card debt, let's say. Let's pick a, a softer topic, right? It's, it's a equally challenging, but let's set aside addiction for a moment and then extrapolate. So let's say somebody gets into credit card debt and you have a relative and they call you and you're a loving person and thank God you have a few, you have some discretionary charity money or money that you'd, you'd be glad to share with others. And they call you up and they say, listen, Aviva, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I never had this before, but I have $8,000 in credit card debt and I keep juggling it and it's growing and it's, I, I can't do anything about it. Can you please help me out? So let's say you say, you know what? I know. God, I'll write you a check. Fine. I'll write you $8,000 check. Promise me you're never going to do it again. Now, that person learned that $8,000 is not a disaster because I, I sweet talked my way into getting out of this. Now, if the person is self-motivated, they may never do this again. But in all likelihood, if it's a compulsion, the next time it's going to be $30,000. So the rock bottom would have been $8,000. However, it's an act, on some level, it would seem like tremendous cruelty for Aviva to tell her sister, I'm sorry, I'm not bailing you out unless you go for help. And you say, yeah, unless you go for help. You're just too 
blank and cheap to do it, right? right? You know, so, so it, it's so, it's, such, it's a horrible thing to do. And that's only with money. So the, the theory, Dr. Tversky, when I first spoke to him about addiction, every time I spoke to him, he says, Rabbi Yaakov, who's the enabler? He says, there's no addict without an enabler. So that's what he said. Who's the enabler? So if not, an addict without an enabler hits rock bottom earlier on. And what an enabler is, someone has, a, let's say, a gambling problem or, or a, a, you know, a pornography addiction or, a, or a, an addiction to, to alcohol or substance abuse, to drugs. I mean, let's say they have an opioid addiction. And then, and then <clears throat> sooner or later, the person crashes. They might go to jail. They might get arrested for, 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 excuse me, for doing it. They lose their job. Other people find out about it. And someone comes along and says, all right, look, I, I know I'm going to bail you out. So you're removing the rock bottom now and you're lowering it. Raising the bottom means trying to create circumstances that force the addict to deal with this earlier in, in any area of life. So if someone is, let's say, and it's, look, it's so difficult. So for argument's sake, someone has a married child that's, that's developing very bad practices in his or her marriage. And they're close to getting divorced, let's say. So helping them would be completely, would be... Um, for paying for therapy. If you go to therapy and you really want to get better, I'll be glad to pay for that. If you say, um, it's okay, Shefalo, I'm sure it's not your fault, you know, stuff like that on an emotional level is you're lowering the bottom now. Now the guy goes back or the woman goes back and continues to be rude and said, well, my mom or my dad or my friend said that, that this is normal. So that's... I'm not, did I answer your question? Yeah, no, I'm just listening. Okay, thank you. No, so that's the basic idea. The basic idea is that when we lower the bottom, we feel good. <laughs> that's the crazy part about it. I, I went, because I needed to learn this stuff, I went to many Al-Anon meetings. And, and it's heartbreaking to listen to parents and loved ones and spouses talk about Lowering the bottom, which is terrible for the addict, feels great. You support them, you give them money, you bail them out, you walk out and you say, this really feels good. And raising the bottom feels horrible. You feel like just a creature, you know, but, so that's the answer. I hope that was helpful. Okay, yes. How did they raise their own body? That's what Dr. Tversky was telling me. Right, so that's, that's exactly what Dr. Tversky was telling me. I didn't, I, excuse me, I didn't understand what he was saying because I'm a yeshiva guy. I didn't know enough about it then. What he was telling me that you don't want to change the way you are means, let's say, for argument's sake, I, I don't, let's say I have an anger problem, okay? My disorganization. Excuse me. <laughs> I don't have a problem. <laughs> hi, I'm Yaakov Horowitz, and I have an organization. By the way, that's why they get up at the meetings. They say, hi, I'm Yankee Horowitz, and I'm an addict. And everybody says, hi, Yankee. That's part of it, because you have to it's get... It's not necessarily enough to... Okay, like, so... so people, okay, so let's take the organizational problem, right? So let's say... Um, let's say... For argument, what it would look like for me was that... And thanks for pushing it my way. I appreciate that. <laughs> But um, the, the, 
the um, <laughs> another a few hundred bucks for therapy this month. <laughs> and so, so what it would really look like is 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 not hitting rock bottom and saying, come on, I'm 60 years old, I got a lot of stuff done in my life, uh, cut it out, I'm not organized to deal with it. A, a reflective way, that's lowering the bottom, saying it's fine. Uh, raising the bottom says that a lot of times my not being organized puts stress on my wife. And it's not fair that she has to run around the house looking for my keys because I have to go to, to do something. So being really reflective and saying, how does my action how do my actions impact people around me? And, it, and if that's a tough process, and that forces me the next few times to look around and see, am I doing everything I can to help people around me not get frustrated? So therefore, I'll use the coaster. I don't know if you were at the last talk, right? So I'll take the, when my wife says, here's a coaster, <laughs> I love it. You know, but, but that's really the problem. I have to have the reflection. That's what Dr. Torsky was saying. You have something, you say you're not organized, you, you know, Yankee, you really cut it out. You don't really want it. That's what he was challenging me. He's saying, you don't want to change. You don't feel that you're a rock bottom with this. So if you were, and you'd say, you know, it's really not fair that I should be doing this, um, then you will force yourself to that level of reflection then you go to a base musr and talk about it for 90 days, maybe you'll change. That's what he was saying. So the process of reflection says that you, you, even though you don't need to, you don't have a gun to your head. It's not like I lost a job and I have no parnasa right now because I'm constantly messing up, missing meetings or, you know, whatever, missing flights to get here, right? So that's not happening. I'm just annoying folks around me. Oh, okay. <laughs> so once you, so it's, it's, a, it's a tough process. That's why people don't change. So it's, it's about going, that's what Dr. Tursky was challenging me. That's what we're here for. If, 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 if changing requires this type of, of, of reflection. Go, yes, please. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Good, go. I have about, I'm very organized. I don't want to miss my flight. <laughs> I have about six minutes, go. That's the killer. That's why it's so hard to listen to meetings of... Uh, the question was, let's say someone is in a marriage, or a parent for that matter, right? And, and we come through the same situation, for example, not related to addiction. Let's say, God forbid, there's abuse within a family, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's, it's child abuse, and it's discovered. The reason people don't go to the authorities or have the, the, the inclination not to go to the authorities is that stinks, that's rock bottom to the third power. Everybody knows there's gonna be headlines, the children are gonna be embarrassed, the kids are gonna be embarrassed, and therefore people make the tough choice. They say, you know, it's gonna be much worse than now. I'm gonna, usually happens is it just gets worse and worse and worse. So it's a killer, you're absolutely right. That is it. What you described now, saying, so I'm living with someone who has an addiction and he, already, he or she, let's say, st stole money from the you know, boosted credit cards, took out credit cards in other people's names, is running up a tab, let's just stick to 
a lighter subject, not that this is small in any way, but a lighter subject than sex abuse or domestic violence. So someone that's taking out credit cards and, and, st- and pulling money from purses and, and bags and stealing money from their own children. You know, that, when I asked Dr. Tversky about rock bottom, one of the things he told me, um, he mentioned to me, which was like, whoa, he said that, that uh, a guy came to him in Pittsburgh and said that he's at rock bottom. He lost his job. His wife kicked him out of the house. He doesn't speak to his children. He doesn't have a penny. He's mamash homeless. And he stopped. He went back to drinking a couple of days later. And what stopped him at the end, that's what Dr. Tursky was explaining to me, that you don't even know what rock bottom is and every person interprets it differently. What this guy was raising... Um, half a million dollars for the United Way every year. It was a, a secular per- person, a non-Jewish person. And, but he was a businessman, very influential. He raised uh, over half a million dollars every year for the United Way annual campaign. And he was selling blood, his blood, to go buy alcohol. And he had places that he was able to sell blood. It was before AIDS. You know, so like they weren't screening it the way they did today. And he was selling his, a unit of blood for like $20 to buy a couple of cheap bottles. And somehow that got him to change. And then he really changed. He said, I used to raise half a million dollars in a few weeks, and now I'm sitting here sh- taking blood out of my system to make 20 bucks. What's that better than losing your job and your life and your family and your kids? I don't know. He said, to him, that was rock bottom. So, so that's, it's that process, it's that thinking and understanding that you don't know. So if someone's in a situation where they have a loved one, we get into this, just like Dr. Tversky said, you think this is rock bottom, that's not. Bidiyuk, it's exactly why we look at sometimes when, when scandals come out, especially in the issue of child abuse, people say, like, why did you cover up? Why didn't you go to the police? Because I spoke to the person and they were at rock bottom. The person was in my office crying and they, they were kicked out of the house and they lost their job and they're never going to do this again. And then to you, it's rock bottom. It's not rock bottom to them. So that's the basic idea. I'm sorry to give you a, 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 a hard subject, which is why we really need to, if one is dealing with this in a family, I don't believe that anybody is really equipped to deal with this on their own, with a loved one. So because it's so counterintuitive and it's so painful and it makes us feel so horrible. I've been at meetings, I, I, my, you know, one of the reasons, the things that drives me to do these preventative things, that we're working, I hope, our next project is gonna, we're working on a safety curriculum for, for kids in day schools. Uh, and I sell it for Orthodox kids, but I'm saying for, for kids, um, uh, about tinkering it to, to make a curriculum about drinking and smoking and stuff. You know, you listen to, to these loved ones anguish over, I, I can't believe I did this. I threw my kid out of the house and said, you can't come back until you pass a drug test. I don't know where he is at night. And I, I'm waiting every minute for the phone to ring, telling him that you found him dead somewhere. And it, it's horrible. I said, what kind of creature did I become? But that's the only way it stops. It's so complicated. So if any of you are dealing with folks, you cannot deal with this yourself. There's no way, there's no chance that any of you have the capacity to really deal with this. So whether it's a terrible thing like this or even something more mild, you really need, I really, really, really encourage you to go for a professional help. And that doesn't mean a guy like me that's telling you to go to help. You need to go to a real professional who's in the field so you can talk this through. Folks, 
Mazel and Baruch to you all. It's been delightful being here. Thank you so much. Do you know whose phone this is? Is it Rabbi Foxbrenner?